Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it tells us, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And with that verse, we enter into the part of Daniel, the section of the book of Daniel, that has been called the little revelation of the Hebrew Bible. The mini revelation, these last six chapters. And that's why I decided to go ahead with chapter 7 tonight, rather than chapter 6. We'll go back to chapter 6 on Sunday. But this little revelation is huge. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture in terms of its uh, revelatory significance, its prophetic uh, profoundness. Daniel chapters 1 through 6, as we talked about when we opened up the book a few weeks back, is primarily practical. It's primarily historic. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is primarily prophetic and future. Most of what we hear is future, not only to Daniel, but to you and to me as well. And so as we enter the prophetic realm tonight and begin to... Uh, wade into this section of Daniel's prophecies, I want to offer you a couple of important study notes. I think you could apply these study notes to any time we deal with prophecy, but specifically here in Daniel, number one, note this, the visions change the viewpoint. The visions change the viewpoint. First of all, Daniel is now directly being spoken to by the Lord. God is not speaking through Nebuchadnezzar's dreams or writing on Belshazzar's wallpaper. Okay, He is speaking directly to Daniel in dreams and visions. And so this is different than before. Daniel's not being brought in to interpret something God brought to another, but these are brought directly to the servant Daniel. These divine communiques have been coming to Daniel since the first year of Belshazzar's co-regency back in 553 B.C. And that is when this chapter actually happens. If you were here Sunday morning, you know at the end of chapter 5 that Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain, that he's dead at that point. That's at the end of his reign. That's at 539 B.C. So we're actually jumping back. When Daniel is receiving this prophecy, you'll see at the very end of the prophecy tonight that he writes down that he didn't tell anybody. He wrote it down and, and held on to it. Didn't speak a word of it. Apparently not even to uh, Azariah and, and Mishael and Hananiah, his, his brothers, his friends. But just held on to it. And we get to open it here tonight. But the visions change the viewpoint. Which may explain a bit of Daniel's response to Belshazzar back in chapter 5. Look that back there real quickly. Chapter 5, verse 16 Belshazzar, in his self-importance, tells Daniel that uh, if you read the inscription and make its interpretation known to to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, from his perspective, that's a big deal. And I think you're going to see tonight there's such a vast difference between the human perspective and the divine perspective. Belshazzar says, hey, I'll make you number three in the kingdom, second to me, or second to me, third to my father, Nabonidus. You get to be a big wig. You get some status. And you get you know, some gold here and some purple gifts. And Daniel responds, I just love this. Keep your gifts for yourself. Or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. And it's not that Daniel doesn't care 
about Belshazzar. It's just that after the visions have already started coming, he sees things differently. And prophecy always does that. Prophecy changes our perspective. The prophetic word allows us to see things the way God sees things rather than the way we tend to see things or the way mankind sees things. The prophetic word, it exchanges petty hope in things like gold and purple robes and status for the living hope in Jesus Christ. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Prophecy changes my perspective. I begin to see more clearly with the eyes of the Lord. Because prophecy puts me in touch with God's perspective. It allows me to see things from His vantage point. So that's the first thing to recognize. Secondly, we need to note that the prophecies are now from God's perspective. They are now from His perspective. Daniel gets the divine angle. And that's the beauty of prophecy. We are invited to stand up and look out from God's overlook. You ever been driving on a high mountain road and there, there are those, those places where you can pull off to the side and you can just look off over great vistas and, and see an amazing view? And that's what prophecy does. lifts us up to see how God assesses the world. Daniel chapter 7 is an amazing assessment. An assessment from the Father's perspective of the nations of the world. We've already seen one from man's perspective, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image, the great statue, a fantastic monument to mankind and to humanity. Well, that's man's perspective of the nations and empires and kingdoms of the world. God's perspective is quite different. It reminds me, actually, of the Festivus episode of Seinfeld. (laughs) For you Seinfeld fans... um, In that episode, Jerry has a girlfriend who is absolutely stunning. She's beautiful, but in the wrong light. She is just ugly. And it's hilarious how they do it on the show, but they get into a a corner of an alley or something, and the light's wrong, and he looks at her and goes, oh, you know, and and even in their coffee shop, let's sit in this booth over here because here she looks good. (laughs) Over there, not so much. So, you know, and it's happening through the whole show. And that, that struck me years ago, that is what it's like. You see, we look at things from a human perspective and, oh, they look beautiful and they're clean and they're shiny and they may be handsome and God looks at the same thing and goes, wow, that's ugly. Ooh, that's, that's dark. And we in our humanity go, huh? Dark? Ugly? What, what are you talking about, Lord? And He goes, well, let me give you my perspective. And He shifts us via the Word of God, via prophecy, and we see it the way He sees it and we go, ooh, that is ugly. Perhaps we should sit in this booth over here. <laughs> God's perspective changes our view. You know that Nebuchadnezzar deified his dream. In chapter 3, he built that 90-foot tall monument to man. But where man sees monumental achievements, God sees a monstrous zoo. As we'll see tonight. Where the kingdoms of man are glorious to man, they are beastly to the Lord God. Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, the prophet said, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. So, 
Daniel now, back in chapter 7, he received three night visions as he lay on his bed. We're going to walk these through very carefully tonight. Picking up in the second verse, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven. Some think those four winds of heaven are demonic. Uh, stirring up the great sea. Satan, after all, is called the prince of the power of the air, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And I thought about that, and I thought that that's a possibility, I suppose. But in this case, remember that Daniel already told us this about the Lord. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings, He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And since God is the one who sets up kings and brings down kings, in this case, the stirring of the sea is probably the work of the Lord. I believe it's the hand of God. Probably working through angelic servants, by the way, because this whole idea of the winds of heaven, the four winds of heaven. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. uh, The Hebrew writer quotes Psalm 104, verse 4, which says, Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. So using winds is a picture of the work of angels. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of heaven, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So I think when we're looking here at this vision of the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, I believe the hand that stirs here is the hand of the Lord. And the great sea that is being stirred up for the Jew, what sea would that be, Bible students? The Mediterranean. The great sea. That sea that borders the nation of Israel even today, still today. And so the Mediterranean Sea also was the sea that all four of the major empires that will be talked about here are run right up against. So the Great Sea is the sea for all of these empires we're going to take a look at tonight. Bottom line, there's a stirring going on. There's going to be a great shuffling of nations. And the Lord is now telling Daniel this via a vision. I'm going to shuffle things up. I'm going to stir it up for my own purposes. However, we need to understand that though God is stirring things up for His own purposes, oftentimes things are equally being stirred up by our own sin. You understand that? That my sin brings about consequence. And I suffer the consequence of those sin choices. At the same time, God is using that consequence to bring me into a better place or to, uh, for some purpose that He has in mind beyond what I can see. So two things are happening there, the discipline of the Lord and the consequence of my own sin. And God will work in those consequences. In this case, Isaiah 57 verse 20 tells us, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. These nations are not godly. These nations are not divine even though they are set up by a divine God. So out of this stirring, striving, tumultuous sea of wicked humanity, four beastly kingdoms rise up. Verse 3. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea 
different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Beast number one, as we saw with the head of gold on the image in Daniel chapter 2, beast number one is Babylon. It is a lion. A lion with eagle's wings. The first beast, Babylon. Daniel would have recognized this beast. In fact, most people in the ancient world would have recognized the symbol of Babylon in a lion with wings. That was the Babylonian symbol. Not just a lion, but a lion with wings. And on reliefs that they have excavated from that region that are now standing in the British Museum, got to make a trip to that British Museum one of these days. But they have reliefs that are carvings and images of lions with wings. This was like the American eagle. The Babylonian lion, the winged lion. And so just the use of this image immediately, you know we're talking about Babylon. Daniel would have understood that. Jeremiah referred to Nebuchadnezzar as both a lion and an eagle. In Jeremiah chapter 49, you can read that when you have a chance to study it out. Jeremiah 49 verses 19 through 22 specifically. Nebuchadnezzar, the eagle and the lion. But here we're shown that he has eagle's wings. They portray uh, a fast-moving lion. A lion that comes flying in. And Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power was pretty stunning. And was pretty quick. Yet at the same time, those same wings that portray a quick rise to power are plucked. And once those wings are plucked, it indicates a great fall from grace into that humbling, grass-chewing insanity. When Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. We talked about that last week. How did that story end? Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was restored, wasn't he? In fact, we see Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4 praising God. We see him with a heart of worship. And the Bible tells us here in verse 4 that he is given, he was made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was also given to it. The word for mind there, leb in the Hebrew, is heart. He's given a heart. And I think this is further evidence of Nebuchadnezzar's legitimate conversion of faith. He's given a heart. He puffs himself up. He's prideful. His wings are plucked and down he goes. And for seven years, he's insane. Until he has stood back up, restored, given a heart and begins to worship the Lord. You may recall Ezekiel the prophet, chapter 36, verse 26, recorded the Lord saying, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And God's talking to Israel and saying, I'm going to restore you and give you a heart. And in the same way, Nebuchadnezzar is restored and he's given a heart. And that should tell us something about the desire of the Lord for each of us. He doesn't give us a mind that we might know every law. He doesn't give us bodies that we might hold fast and and, and find ourselves strong enough to walk this walk. He gives us a heart that we might be in a relationship with Him. That we might love Him and understand that we are loved by Him. So Nebuchadnezzar given a heart. And I do think we will be seeing Him again someday. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side. 
And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now some commentators have tried to divide this one into... uh, into two to say this is the bears, the Medes, and then the next animal would be the Persians and try and push push it further down the line. Why would they do that? Because they need to get Rome out of the picture. What do you mean? Even a late dating of Daniel, so those who want to deny that this book is so amazingly prophetic, would try to date Daniel further down the line, like around 150 B.C. rather than the mid-500s B.C. And the reason they need to push it down to where Rome is not being talked about here is so that they can say it's all an an historical writing. So they don't believe that the fourth beast is Rome. We'll get there in a minute. Nor do they believe that the third... they, They push everything down. So they would just say that the bear here is the Medes and the next animal that we see is the Persians. The problem is the prophecies are so specific. How do you mean? Look at this bear. Beast number two is a bear eating ribs. Okay? It is. God is creative. A bear eating ribs. This is the combination armies, the combination nation, the coalition of the Medes and the Persians together. Why? Think this through with me. First of all, why is it a bear? We understand the lion was a symbol, the flying lion, a symbol of Babylon. So why a bear for Medo-Persia? Because the Medes and the Persians gathered together and were a massive 2.5 million man army. And they were known in their fighting ability to just overwhelm their foes with their massive numbers. They were slow, they were lumbering, they were not quick on their feet, but as an army they would just consume as they went. Because they were so big. They were so lumbering, history tells us a lot of the soldiers of the Medo-Persians brought along their wives and kids for the campaigns. It would be a great way to raise children, wouldn't it? Hey, brought home a head of the enemy tonight. (laughs) Put it in the corner, sweetie. But this is what they did. The bear, a slow-moving, lumbering... Now, I know bears can actually move pretty fast, but not as fast as lions. And the picture here is this big, lumbering bear. Didn't have the lion-like royalty of Babylon... But it overwhelmed its opponents just with its massive size. Here's where it gets specific. The prophecy says one side is raised up, implying there are two sides to this bear, and one side is stronger than the other side. One side is buffer, one side is bigger, one side is more powerful. In the coalition of the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were the power. Now the Persians needed the Medes, they needed the sheer numbers, But they were stronger as a nation and ultimately would overwhelm the Medes and this would be a Persian kingdom. But it began as the Medes and Persians together, one side raised up being Persia. Three ribs are in its mouth. Why three ribs? Three kingdoms that the Medes and Persians together overtook, overwhelmed. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia were the three kingdoms The Medes and the Persians overwhelmed. So three ribs in its mouth. And the Medo-Persian army had a voracious appetite for violence, hence the invitation here to devour much meat. The next prophecy is equally specific. Verse 6, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So beast number three is a four-headed, four-winged leopard. And we're talking about Greece. 
And we can look back and historically see how accurate this truly is. Greece, led by perhaps the most amazing military mind in history. So amazing he was called the Great. Alexander the Great. He was a child prodigy. Gang, he started leading Greece into battle at the age of 16. Twelve years later, at the age of 28, twelve years, he had conquered the entire world. He was fast moving, which is why a leopard. In fact, a leopard with four wings because he was moving quick. That's how he won. That's how he fought. He was brilliant. He was the, uh, the architect, if you will, of guerrilla warfare. And he knew how to face and, and how to flank and how to overtake large, massive, lumbering armies like that of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the movie 300. Some of you may have seen I never saw it. came out a while ago. It's, it's somewhat of a fictional account, but it's a, an account ultimately of the battle at Thermopolis. And the battle at Thermopolis did not go as it went in the movie exactly. In fact, at the battle of Thermopolis, over a million Medo-Persians met up against Alexander the Great's 35,000 men. And Alexander the Great's men won. Routed the Medes and the Persians. They came on them with leopard-like panzer troops. And he struck fast. And he struck unpredictably. And they defeated the Medes and the Persians. Alexander the Great's Fame was short-lived, however. He conquered the known world by 28, and by 33 he was dead. Died of of, uh, pneumonia, actually. And so four generals, four heads of the leopard. The leopard has four heads. Four generals took control of Greece and divided up the empire, north, south, east, and west among them. Cassander, Lysimachus, uh, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. So those four guys now control Greece. Do you see how in Nebuchadnezzar's dream we went from gold to silver to bronze? We got a decreasing value to the metal. And the same with these animals. You get a decreasing uh, strength in the coalition. You begin with a single lion and then you get a bear with one side that's stronger than the other. And now you have a four-headed leopard and it's looking in four directions because you got four generals dividing up the kingdom into four segments, which is not as strong as a single kingdom led by a single dictator. Which is why I've said Babylon was the greatest kingdom in history because if you can have just one guy leading the whole kit and caboodle, and if you can have that kind of unification around one leader... Well, that's going to be stronger than if you have four guys leading north, south, east, and west. So these four guys, we're going to actually meet up with them later on in another study. You read through and you you think about these guys like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Alexander the Great, um, Cyrus the Persian, and Darius the Mede, some amazing world leaders. And i got to tell you, I, I, I wonder where the great world leaders are today. In a population base in the world of 7.1 billion people and counting, wouldn't you think someone would rise up? I mean, is it really this hard to find someone who can lead? The Jerusalem Post, uh, just yesterday, tells us that the U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel was praising, in a shocking moment, praising Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was praising him because he was saying Israel's credible threat of military force against Iran, Persia, has brought them back to the negotiating table. 
In my opinion, Benjamin Netanyahu is a lone voice in a great sea of weak-willed politicians. And most of whom are ruling the world right now are these weak-willed politicians more concerned with themselves than they are with their empires or their nations. It's not a good situation. We're asking the question, everybody's looking, who can solve the problems of the Middle East? And I call this the great setup. The world is being set up in an amazing way. And not set up for Jesus. The world is being set up for one who would be like Jesus. One who would say, I am your Savior, I am your Messiah. The Jews are still waiting for Messiah. Remember, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him, John tells us. So Jesus came to the Jewish people and they, they said, no, you're, you're not our Messiah. Now, a lot of Jews obviously accepted Jesus. The first century church was primarily Jewish. But as a nation, there was a rejection. They're still looking for Messiah to bring peace. Jesus said in John 5.43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And Jesus was talking about Antichrist. One who will come whom the Jews will receive. A man of peace. A Messiah figure. Muslims are looking for the Mahdi. The twelfth Imam, who according to the Quran, will precede Jesus and Muhammad and will bring, check this out, will bring, it's amazing how Satan works, will bring a seven year peace. So that's what the Muslims are waiting for. A seven year Messiah of peace. Jews are waiting for a Messiah. The world is looking for a a leader. We've seen in recent elections how the entire world falls at the feet of one man, impressed and amazed at the oratory skills of our current president. And whether or not you voted for him, seriously, you got to take that. There are people who go, well, Obama's the Antichrist. I'm not believing that Obama's the Antichrist, but I will tell you this. What he shows us and what we have seen in the last several years is that the world is looking for someone and they will be deceived like that. I'm not picking on the president. I'm really not. It's just been amazing to me to watch how how nations have fallen in line. And and now not so much. I mean, the popularity is, is tanking for Barack Obama. But the world's being set up and being prepared for this world leader to come. We're going to see the significance of that seven-year peace treaty in Daniel chapter 9. Jews look for a Messiah. The Muslims look for their imam. Or their imami, which, depending on your age as a Muslim. I don't know. And they are all going to fall for the Antichrist. Verse 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like that of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And what Daniel sees in this vision, truly leaves this beast number four, who I'm just going to call the beast. Because he leaps in this vision beyond simply Rome. When we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, you get to the legs, the iron legs, two legs, 
like the divided Roman kingdom east and, and west. Two legs of iron, but it was Rome, mighty Rome. And then you get down to the feet that were an amalgamated iron and clay mix, which is a picture of that future kingdom. Well, here, it's all just kind of lumped together, that you see this, this terrifying beast with these iron teeth. And that does speak of, of Rome historically. For Daniel, it was Rome prophetically. But it's one creature. It's one creature that was both Rome then, but also this nation that's going to rise. This empire that is yet to come. It is Rome, and it is the future empire that comes up out of Rome, out of that same beast. Has the same roots. Of the four beasts, Rome was, Rome was the biggest, the baddest, and the most beastly of them all. It lasted the longest, over 500 years. But again, these feet step beyond ancient history and go to the distant future, at least for Daniel. I don't think so distant for us. Because all of a sudden, this beast has ten horns. Kind of like the ten toes on the feet. And that is significant. Ten toes on the feet? Well, my feet have ten toes. That doesn't make me the Antichrist. I know that. But this this statue's ten toes, and now the beast's ten horns... And we will see in a moment why that is so significant that it is literally speaking of ten kings rising out of a restored Roman Empire of sorts. I don't know exactly how that's going to look. There were those who were, who were absolutely bent on the European Union several years ago. It's got to be the European Union. And the European Union even started out calling itself the Big Ten because they wanted to be a conglomerate of ten nations, which is prophetically you know, stupid. You know, they, they're not recognizing what they're doing. But they're not that now. They're far more than ten. And, and with all the things going on in the EU right now, who knows if, if that's where it's going to come from or not? But it will come. I'm convinced because Scripture tells us from a revived Roman Empire of sorts. It's going to grow out of that. Ten toes, ten horns, ten kings, and the little horn that pops up and rips out three other horns is the Antichrist is a picture of this Antichrist character. Now, hold that thought and read a little bit further. Daniel says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Thrones were set up. Now, he's seeing a vision in heaven. He has shifted from an earthly vision, a beastly vision, to now a heavenly vision. I kept looking and and he sees thrones that are set up. John the Apostle saw these thrones. Same thrones, gang. Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne, that would be the throne of God, the throne of the Lamb, were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their heads. Daniel saw the thrones. John now refers to the same thrones in a very similar vision of heaven, of the heavenly throne room, But it's interesting, Daniel only saw the thrones. He doesn't mention, at least, who was sitting upon the thrones. John tells us it was 24 elders. Why doesn't Daniel mention the elders? And John does. Well, remember, Daniel is the key to Revelation. And Revelation helps explain Daniel. There were things Daniel did not know that John did know. 
There were things that had not yet been unlocked or unsealed for us to understand. And Daniel was in that place of looking and trying to understand. And even had he seen the 24 elders, he would not have understood who they represented. Why not? Because they represent the church. They are, if you will, the representatives of the church. Kind of like we have the House of Representatives, only not so much representation as I'd I'd appreciate. But the elders represent the church. And the church in Daniel's day was still a mystery. Something not understood in the Hebrew Scriptures, not understood among the Jewish people, that God had another plan for the Gentiles that He was about to birth with the coming of Christ. Paul says it this way, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5, In other generations it was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. The mysterion in Greek. Paul uses that word a lot in Ephesians and Colossians. The mysterion, it speaks of the church. And Paul says, until, really, until Pentecost, people didn't get it. Until Jesus comes along and starts speaking of this called out assembly, they didn't understand And so, John, looking and seeing the thrones in heaven, and seeing the 24 elders, can recognize what's going on when Daniel couldn't have. Daniel would have liked to, but remember, even for Daniel, some of these prophecies were beyond his comprehension, beyond his understanding. Well, this whole scene is marvelous and mysterious. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Wheels? Fire? White hair? I think Ezekiel and John would concur. Because this all fits with the framework of heavenly visions that have been given. Ezekiel talking about the wheels of the cherubim all around the throne and the flashes of lightning and the fire. And John seeing such a similar picture The Ancient of Days on the throne. The Ancient of Days. Does he look familiar to you? Vesture of white snow, his hair like a head of pure wool. Now there is a debate. The Ancient of Days is God, obviously. But the debate is whether it's God the Father or God the Son who is seated seated on that throne. In verse 13, further down, we'll get there in just a minute, but the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. Well, we know the Son of Man is Jesus, right? So if He's presented before the Ancient of Days, then the Ancient of Days would be God the Father. However, down in verse 22, we're told that the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed. Well, who has the hand of judgment? Jesus does. So in that case, the Ancient of Days would be Jesus. Well, that's confusing, Rick. Both Father and Son are Ancient of Days? Yes. And it is wholly consistent with Scripture. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one and the same God. And when we try to separate out, and I know it can be overwhelming for us, and if you sit there going, okay, Al, Al, I don't get it. The Trinity, it's too big. Good. He's God. You're not. You're not going to get Him. Not completely. But Father... Honor Son. Son honors Father. Spirit points to Jesus. Jesus speaks through the Spirit. I mean, He is one and the same. So the ancient, I have no problem with the Ancient of Days being God the Father and God the Son. 
And again, it's wholly consistent with Scripture. Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, that's the Spirit of Christ talking about God the Father having begotten Him. But the word begotten, understand this, Paul explains to us, speaks of His resurrection. Not His birth. When he says, today I have begotten you, it's not saying that Jesus was created or begotten of God as in at one point there was a birth. No, the begotten speaks of His resurrection. Today I have begotten you. Father speaking to Son. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So you have God the Father speaking to God the Son in the second psalm. However... The second psalm ends in verse 12 saying, Do homage, worship in other words, the Son. Well, the Father doesn't share His glory with anyone, and to worship anyone other than God is blasphemy. So to worship the Son must be to worship the Father. Are you with me? Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus pulled this one out on the Pharisees and completely stumped them. Because Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord, Adonai, says to my... Or the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord. I always thought the Lord, Yahweh, and the Lord, Adonai were the same Lord. Right? Well, the Lord is speaking to the Lord and says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God the Father speaking to God the Son. God the Father spoken of as Yahweh. God the Son is Adonai, which is a name for God the Father. The Father and the Son are one. John 14, verse 9. I love this. Jesus very clearly said to Philip, who just said, Lord, just show us the Father and we're cool. My translation. And Jesus responded and said, How long have I been with you, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see God? Jesus says, look at me. Not me, Rick. Jesus. (laughs) Clarifying. So this is the biblical view of the divine unity of Father and Son as the one and same God, the Ancient of Days. Is it Jesus? Yes. Is it God the Father? Absolutely. The Ancient of Days. Verse 10. And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands were attending Him and myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. The court sat and the books were opened. And with this, the heavenly court is in session. What court? I believe it's the same court we see in session that John sees in session in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. It is the court that precedes, this is the judgment seat of God that opens up, that precedes the tribulation. Court is now in session. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. The judgment is clear. The judgment is made. And heaven prepares to judge the nations of the earth for their rebellion. That's what Daniel sees in this amazing vision. That's what John saw in John chapter, or Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And it's amazing because Daniel gives a pithy description in these four verses that John spreads out and explains across two full chapters. So if you want to know in the two verses that we just read there, verses 9 and 10, the full picture, go read Revelation 4 and 5. That's the full picture of what Daniel saw. 
Daniel saw it. John saw it. Two witnesses have seen it. And God says everything, every matter shall be established by two witnesses. Both Daniel and John see this judgment court in session prior to the beginning of the tribulation. Verse 11. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Can you imagine Daniel writing this and going, I don't know what I'm writing. This makes no sense to me. The judgment having been handed down, this heaven and earth scene parallels the last three and a half years of tribulation on earth. Okay, This is speaking now of these last three and a half years. I kept looking, he says, until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire, thus ending that tribulation period. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them. Understand what's going on here. It's just amazing. Daniel's seeing this, this heavenly courtroom. He's seeing this scene. And then a, a flash forward to the, the fulfillment of the judgment that's given in that courtroom. He sees the fulfillment as this beast is slain. But before the beast is slain, he, he, he's looking at heaven. He's in, in, enthralled by the vision. And this stupid horn keeps horning in. Keeps mouthing off. You know, and he, but, but he sees the vision. He wants to see heaven, but he keeps hearing this noisy, loud-mouthed little horn that keeps trying to distract Daniel from the heavenly vision, which is exactly what the devil's always trying to do. He's always horning in. He's always blowing his own horn. He's always trying to distract you from the real matter at hand, from the real importance in your life. He distracts. He gets as loud as he can. He brags about big important things. Things that attract and lure human interest. You know if you invest in this, you might make a little more money. It's going to take some time. You know, this this job is perfect for you. You're going to have to give up going to church, but perfect. Here's an opportunity. Here's a great investment. Here's something else you can do. And he speaks these things that seem so important to us from a human perspective. And he's loud and he's honking. And he's trying to distract from the matter at hand. And we have to remember about the devil that the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. That's his M.O. To, To steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But do we have life? No, because we're so busy chasing life that we think is life. Even religion does it. Jesus says you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. You're looking so hard for life. And Satan's going, life's over here, honk. Life's over here, honk, honk. Life's over here. It's like a goose, you know. But it's not a golden egg. It's just an egg that he's laying for you. Was Daniel distracted? No. No. Daniel's not distracted. He just keeps looking heavenward. Watch this. Note this. Until the beast was slain. And that's a great 
example for us. In fact, that's the key in your life, in my life. We keep looking to Jesus until the beast is slain. Just keep looking to Jesus. If you're feeling distracted, if you're feeling drawn away, if you're feeling like you're missing it, just keep looking to Jesus. The beast is going to get slain. The Bible's clear about that. Verse 12. Verse 12 I already read, but it says, As for the rest of the beasts, the nations, because we're talking about nations here, right? Their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Anyone want to guess how long that period of time is? A thousand years. It's the millennial kingdom. And so Daniel, not understanding it, but is given a revelation, a a key, if you will, that unlocks the later revelation of the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. And we know from other prophetic writings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that there are certain nations that will survive as nations. Their dominion will be removed from them, but they as nations will be invited and ushered into the millennial kingdom. Which tells us that there are Gentiles saved. That there are Gentiles who will survive the tribulation by the grace of God alone, and Jews as well, and will come into the kingdom together. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That is a resurrection, spiritual resurrection, spiritual life. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And John writes it in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years, 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 and a thousand years. He says it six times, just in case we miss it. He's that specific. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language or literally tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And my friends, Jesus owns that passage. In fact, he owned it in his life and ministry. First time on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, verse 30. Mark 13, verse 26. Luke 21, verse 27. In those passages, in the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is giving that great prophetic overview, He owns this verse. He says, Behold, you're going to see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And He's referring to Himself. The second time Jesus says this is when He's standing trial. Matthew 26, verse 63. They're hurling insults at him. The Sanhedrin is is digging in. They're trying to find something by which they can execute him. And we're told Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You said it. You said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel. He quotes Daniel talking about the Ancient of Days, talking about the Son of Man presented, making himself equal with God, and the Jewish leaders freaked out. Tore their robes and said, What what do we need to hear anymore? He's a blasphemer. And they take him on to Pilate and ultimately his crucifixion. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. 
and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. Coming with the clouds. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Now see, I read this, verses 13 and 14, and I just get pumped. You know, I get excited. I'm like, that's Jesus. That's my Jesus right there. You know, that is him. And he's coming. And I'm like, yes. Daniel sees this and he's not, he doesn't understand it all. And, and it's, it's frightening to him. And it's overwhelming. And these massive beasts and these earthly nations and then this heavenly glory. And it's just, and the fear of God is in Daniel, which is a good thing. But it's overwhelming to him. And it's alarming. And he says, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. Gang, he's having a vision, but it's like actual, like he's there. Because now in his vision, he walks over to one of the people there in the throne room in heaven and goes, Hey, what's, what's going on? Can you tell me what's up with this? I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, he says, which are four, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, can we at least agree that these are four literal kings? That the beasts that are mentioned here, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and this other beast with the iron teeth, and all the horns and the little horn, can we at least agree with Scripture that these are four actual kings and their nations? Does anyone have trouble accepting that? And of course, from our vantage point, looking back over this prophetic word, we see Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We go, okay, four nations. He said there are four kings. we got Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon. We've got Darius and Cyrus over the Medes and the Persians. We've got Alexander over the Greeks. And then we've got the Caesars over Rome. Of course. So we've got four nations, four kings. It's literal. It's actual. That's what was prophesied. And we can now say we see it clearly. All right? I want to make sure we're clear on that. Because we're going to bring it back up in just a few minutes. But four actual literal kingdoms rose during and in the aftermath of this prophecy. And again, verse 8. Verse 18 says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And now this is talking about the kingdom of Christ. This is talking about, obviously, the coming kingdom. And here's a great contrast. The four nations are representative of the way man builds kingdoms. In America's history, we called it manifest destiny. But in the kingdoms of the world and in every nation that has ever been a nation in the world, from a human perspective, man builds kingdoms through invasion, through conquest, and through overthrow. Right? History shows us that. How do the saints of the highest one do it? They don't conquer. They receive. The saints of the highest one are receivers of a kingdom. Now listen to this. Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 16, an often uh, misunderstood passage and misquoted. 
Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. Well, that passage has been used many different ways. And some see that as a positive. We're going to force the kingdom. We're going to grab on and make it happen. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. I'm convinced. This is a difficult verse, but if we understand it in its plainest meaning, everyone is forcing his way into it. The Greek word forcing is biazo, and it means to take by violent force. And I want to tell you very clearly, Church of the Bridge Fellowship, I don't think I've ever called it that before, I want to tell you this, that is not our calling. We are not called to conquer the world or to take the kingdom by force. That is man's way. That is not the way of the kingdom. That has never been the way of the kingdom of Christ. How do I know that? Because I've read the charter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Wow. So the world's way is to conquer. Man's way is to take by force. God's way is to be poor in spirit. Then you get the kingdom. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I guarantee you, Alexander didn't inherit his kingdom through gentleness. It was force. It was conquest. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus goes on, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, giving the outline of citizens of the kingdom. And how we take and how we come into our kingdom. The saints don't usher in the kingdom by force. They receive the kingdom in thankful humility. We receive it as Christ brings it. Hebrews 12.28 Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. In other words... Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword. That's not how it is to be done. By the way, back in verse 15, there in Daniel 7. Verse 15, note that Daniel says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. Literally, my spirit was distressed in its sheath. The word there for within me is literally sheath in my sheath he refers to his body as a sheath and his spirit as though it were a sword that is sheathed or put within the sheath of the body you want peace then what you need is the sword of the spirit in your sheath the sword of the Holy Spirit the word of God put that in into the sheath of your body and you will have peace verse 19 Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
understand the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three of them fell, namely that horn that had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. So this little horn now is bigger as it rips out the other three horns. He says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until... The Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Note that the saints don't take possession of the kingdom until the Ancient of Days comes and passes judgment. I kept looking until this took place. The Ancient of Days comes and passes judgment. That speaks of Jesus' glorious return. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. That glorious return is talked about in Zechariah 14, in Revelation 19. That the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom when Jesus comes in judgment. And brings the kingdom and establishes it. And we become receivers of it. So, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged if the kingdom seems far away. You just continue to be looking, Titus 2.13, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself, Paul says, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now Daniel's still trying to understand this. So he's still asking, he's tugging on the robes of this guy. Hey, what's going on? So this heavenly bystander, and we don't know who the heavenly bystander is. We don't know if this is an angel, if it's one of the elders. In, in Revelation 4 and 5, it's one of the elders. And Revelation 7 as well, who, who talks to John and, and explains to John. But here we don't know. Angel, elder, witness? Not sure. But he tells us now more of this final beast who is Antichrist. Follow along with me, verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Verse 23 is referring to Rome, which was different than all the other kingdoms, more powerful, lasted longer, greater kingdom, all of that, we we get that. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, which kingdom? Rome, okay? I mean, it's, it's obvious. Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Little Horn is a king, a ruler, who arises at the, at the time of these ten kings. He's going to subdue three. So in the subduing of these ten kings, he's going to gain majority control over this conglomeration of ten nations. But we got to agree, these are ten literal kings. Right? Four kingdoms literally fulfilled, four kings literally fulfilled before in history. We see that, and yet people come along like John Calvin. Great Bible expositor, great teacher, got this one wrong. Calvin believed that all of this was fulfilled before Jesus' first coming. 
Calvin believed that much of these, especially when you get into the ten horns and the ten kings, was allegory. And that is completely inconsistent with all of the other fulfilled prophecies. The ten toes, the ten horns, are associated with this final world ruler as ten kingdoms and ten literal kings in four places in the Bible. We see the ten toes in Daniel 2. We see the ten horns in Daniel 7. We see in Revelation 13 and again in Revelation 17 the ten kings. Ten literal actual kings. I don't know why people would argue against that. But then again, I'm simple-minded and I just take the scriptures at face value. It is what it is, gang. That there is a king who will rise up and subdue three of the ten in this conglomerate nation. It has not happened historically. It will happen. Revelation 13 verse 1 says, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. The dragon, we already are told in Revelation, is Satan. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. As Daniel saw four beasts coming up out of the Mediterranean, coming up out of the sea. He sees a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns. There it is. Seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Ooh, that's like Greece. And his feet were like those of a bear. Oh, Medo-Persia. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion, Babylon. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. This beast is like a conglomeration of all the great beasts of history. This king, Antichrist, will rise up in this final nation of man, which is going to look an awful lot like all the other beastly nations of the world. Be it Babylon or Greece or Rome or whatever. Medo-Persia. It's going to have some similarities to all that and that conquering, uh, overtaking mentality. But in the rest of this, we get some amazing insight into how he's going to abuse the authority that he commandeers. Number one, stealthy subversion. Stealthy subversion. This guy is going to move with stealth. Verse 24 tells us again, he's going to crush three kings. He's going to wrest control of this, of this global ten-nation alliance. And he's going to be a great leader, the likes of which our world does not yet see. But the kind of leader, as we said before, our world desires, wants, is looking for. He's going to be a master politician. He's going to be a dictator like Nebuchadnezzar. He'll be a man with the strength of a Cyrus. He's going to have the military agility of an Alexander. He's going to have the delusions of grandeur of a Caesar. And the world is going to take one look at this man and say, He's our guy. Here's the man of peace. And they're actually going to believe we can elect, we we can follow someone who can fix it all. But it'll be subversive. And he uh, is going to use several beastly moves that are, in my opinion, already in play. Look at verse 25. Things already going on right now. He will speak out against the Most High. So he will be one for brazen blasphemy. Speaking out against God, talking God down, talking against the people of the Lord. And are we not already seeing this in our world? I mean, it is, it is amazing. It used to be that there was a day when a non-believer at least respected the church or respected the name of God. No more. So this blasphemy is already set in motion. People speaking out, the re- voices of rebellion are getting loud and shouting down, speaking against the Lord and against His people. So he says he's going to speak out against the Most High. He says he's going to wear down the saints. 
wear down the saints of the highest one. That phrase wear down is like wearing out clothing. It's just going to keep rubbing and wearing. It's kind of like my son, the knees of my son's jeans. You know, David's jeans don't last the summer because they just get worn through. And this is what Antichrist will do. In fact, the saints there are the remnant of Israel. He's going to wear down the remnant of Israel along with those Gentiles who are in the tribulation, who are who come to faith in the tribulation. So that's when this is talking about taking place, that this Antichrist is going to wear down the saints. However, we see an evangelical exhaustion today, don't we? Denominations are drained. Um, churches are exhausted. Christians are, I don't know, retreating into passivity in the name of tolerance. The evil one is already wearing down the saints. And my question to to you as a fellowship, are are, are we going to stand for that? Are we going to back off? We are not conquerors, but we are confident. We are not going out to, to... conquer the world, but we come to the world with the confidence of Christ. And the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 10.35, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Verse 25 tells us He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and He will intend to make alterations in time and in law. That's interesting. And they will be given into His hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, what does that mean? The word time there is Edan. It is the same word that is used to describe Nebuchadnezzar's seven times. His seven years. Edan is the word for year. So a time, times, and half a time means a year. Times would be two years. So one year plus two years is three years. And half a time, half a year, three and a half years. Time times and half a time is three and a half years. So he's going to be wearing down the saints for a time times and half a time. He's going to be working to change things, to mess with things. And his time is limited. His time is limited. He's going to realize he's going to hit the three and a half year mark in the tribulation, the seven year tribulation, which again, we'll get to in Daniel chapter nine more specifically. But he's going to hit that mark and he's going to recognize his time is limited and he's going to go after it. And he's going to try to change things. It says he's going to try to change, make alterations in time and in law. In other words, time tampering and legal loopholes. What does that mean? It means that the beast powered by Satan is going to go after his last chance at disrupting what God has set in place. God has set the times and the seasons. God has set his law in place. And Antichrist is going to try to change that. He's going to try to alter that. Here's an example of how Antichrist is going to try to change the prophetic word. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He's going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice. He'll make a firm covenant with the many. Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel, and it says in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. 
So he's going to try and alter things. He's going to change God's prescribed feasts and times that Israel has now started to follow again and get back into the law. And Antichrist is going to violate that law. He's going to try and alter it. He's going to try and change it. Because if he can, then prophecy falls apart from his way of thinking. And even though he couldn't stop Christ from coming the first time, he can stop his second coming if he can violate prophecy. Bottom line, it's not going to work. But he's going to try. He's going to try and alter times and alter laws. Now, let's finish this up. Verse 26, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Good news. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Note that, that all these kingdoms will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, not wrested out of others' hands, not conquered by us, given to us. At this point, verse 28, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, in case I don't remember to tell you this next Wednesday night, right there, the Chaldean language stops. And beginning in chapter 8, we're back to Hebrew. Now, you wouldn't see that because obviously we're reading it in English, but it's Chaldean from chapter 2 through chapter 7 at the end of the chapter. And then it's back to Hebrew. Why? Because this is for the nations. This is prophecy for the Gentiles. Daniel concludes all this. Alarmed, pale-faced, keeping the matter to himself. He did not have the perspective that we have today. And he didn't have the understanding that we have now because we look back and we see this whole thing through the, through the blood of Jesus. We see Christ in all of this. And Peter said it, 1 Peter 1.10, As to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Daniel, among the other Hebrew prophets, was given the keys. Now get this given the keys to unlock the revelation of Christ. In my office, I've got a tin can with a lid on it. And it's filled with keys. And I have no idea what they go to. They're just keys over the years. And I keep them because someday we're going to have to open a door and I'm not going to have a key for it. So I'm going to go to the can and see if it's one of those. The keys do you no good if you don't have a door to unlock. Right? Daniel had the keys. But they are not of value to Daniel until the revelation of Jesus is given. And now the keys can plug in and can open out and explain all these things. Christ is the door. Daniel's got the keys, but he doesn't know what to put them into. He doesn't have a door that he can open. So all he can do is sit there looking at the keys and go, I know this is incredibly important. I just don't know what it means. Not yet. And Daniel is one of those who the Hebrew writer said at the end of Hebrews 11 did not receive what was promised until now. That with us, we might all receive the promises together. You and me and Daniel receiving these promises. 
He saw all of these things before Christ, and so he struggled to understand the turbulence and the turmoil and how all of that could turn into triumph in Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus, saints of the highest one, you are in this prophecy. You are mentioned here. Where? Verse 10. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and you are in the myriads. What Daniel saw as a future vision, my friends, this speaks of the opening of heaven, Revelation 4 and 5, and the church is there. You're in this vision. You're among the thousands. You're among the myriads praising the Lord. We will have been caught up to heaven's glorious throne room before the tribulation begins. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Because we're going to see Jesus when He calls us to meet Him in the air and we will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we will live together with Him. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. I pray, Father, You will sink these things deep into our hearts. Draw us close to You and come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.